Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding chapter 7, page 908. The Rebbe will now go on to explain, based on his explanation of the verse, that you should know and you should take to heart that Hashem is Elohim, in the heavens above and the earth below there is none other, that the Torah is not coming to tell us that there is no other God, there's only one God. When we talk about God being one, the unity of God, we don't mean there's only one God and not two gods. But the verse means something far more profound. Or the Torah doesn't mean there's only one power, one independent power force. There is no other independent power force. All of creation is like uh, the axe in the hand of the builder. It's not independent. It's totally dependent on, on the builder. So there's only one force and one power in this world, and God runs the world according to his will, just like the, the soul <coughs> runs the body. The body is a secondary reality to the soul, and the body is totally nullified to the soul. The body is just an expression, an extension, becomes an extension, like a tool to the soul, an expression to the soul. It's even closer than, a, than the relationship between a tool and the axe and the builder, because the body and the soul become one, totally unified. The body ceases to be an act ceases to be an identity. It just becomes totally one with the soul till, till the body becomes alive and the body just becomes an expression of the soul. The body becomes unselfconscious. But the Torah means something far more profound. The Torah means that God is one. There is no other reality. That the world is not even a secondary reality to God. That there is no, no other existence but God. Nothing else exists but God. Not only is the world totally dependent on God, but the world is in non-existence to God. And the world has no value to God. It's not that God created the world, and once He created the world, there's God, and now there's this, this creation, which has some sort of meaning on some sort of level to God. In comparison to God, to God from God's point of view, nothing, there is no other reality. And there's no other existence. All that is is God. Nothing changes with creation. So based on this understanding of unity, that unity means that the existence and creation is completely nullified before God and is completely unified with God, now, he says, we can understand the statement of the Zohar. The Zohar says that there are two levels of unity. When we talk about divine unity, he says there's two levels of divine unity. There's a higher level of divine unity, and there's a lower level of divine unity. Now, if unity means that there's only one God and not two gods, what do you mean a higher level and a lower level? There's only one unity. There's one God. There's one power. There's no higher. There's no lower. But since when we talk about the unity of God, we mean something much more profound, much deeper. We talk about the, the, the way existence is completely nullified before God and unified before God. Not that existence is an illusion. Existence is not an illusion. God created the world. It's real. You bang your head on the table, it's real. And our lives are real now. Our actions are real. But it means that the existence is completely nullified before God and existence is completely unified with God. So now we can understand what the Zohar means, what the Zohar means, that there are two levels of unity. 
there are two levels of nullification. To what extent existence is nullified before God? And to what extent existence is unified with God? Okay, let's begin inside, page 908, with the above in mind. With the above in mind, we may now understand the statement in the Holy Zohar that the verse, Shema Yisroel, is Yehuda Ilah, higher level unity, and that the verse, Baruch Shem Kavo Mahuto Yolom Vo'ed, is Yehuda Tatsav, lower level unity. The connection between the last mentioned verse and divine unity is now explained. For Vayed is equivalent to Echad, through the substitution of letters. The olive of Echad interchanges with the Vav of Vayed. Since both letters belong to the same group of letters, Aleph, He, Vav, Yud, which the Rebbe Shlita notes, are known as the Oitiyat, Chachem, Shech, the connective letters. The chet of Echad interchanges with the ayin of Vayed, since they share the same source, Motza, <coughs> and the organs of speech, and thus both belong to the category of guttural letters. Visa Aleph, He, Chet, Ayin. Finally, the large dalit of Echad transposes into the small dalit of Vayed. As we learned earlier, the Hebrew letters are interchangeable. And it's like when you translate a letter, when the letter is changed, it means that it's the same word, it's the same content, but on a lower level. So echad and vo'ed, the fact that they're interchangeable, both of them represent one theme, a theme of unity. But there's a unity on a higher level, which is echad, the original word. And then you have like the the interchange of that word or the translation of that word which is a lower level represents a lower level of unity so Aleph and Vav are from the same family of letters they're from the uh, connecting letters and the Vav and the Ayin and the Ches are from the guttural from the throat so they're from the same family of letters but the Dalit is the same letter Dalit but in Echad is a huge Dalit. In the Torah, the Dalit of Echad is a huge Dalit. While the Dalit of Vaed is a short Dalit. That's a separate discussion why, in the interchanging of the letters, why Aleph and Ches get to change. It's a different letter. While Dalit is the same letter, but it's just a miniature or normal-sized Dalit. That's a separate discussion. But the Zohar says that the Shema Yisrael and the Baruch Shem, the Shema Yisrael represents Hashem Echad, God is one, represents the higher level of unity. And the Baruch Shem, Kavod, Malchus, Elam Vod, which we say right after the Shema Yisrael, represents the lower level of unity. But he says all of this could only be understood based on what we discussed previously. That the unity, when we talk of the unity of God, we don't mean... There's only one God, we mean the level of nullification of existence within God and the level of the unity of all of existence within God. So there's a deeper and higher level of unity and there's a lower level of unity. In order to understand that, now he begins. Cause and reason for this 
tzimtzum and concealment with which the Holy One, blessed be he, obscured and hid the life force of the world, making it appear as an independent existing entity, is as follows. I.e., the Altar Rebbe is asked why it is indeed necessary for the world to appear as an independently existing entity. What would be lacking if the world would be perceived in its true state as an entity wholly nullified in relation to its source? Okay, so the question he's asking here is, he explained earlier, he started out explaining that creation is something from nothing, meaning that the created being does not exist in the source. It absolutely does not exist. It is not like cause and effect, where the effect is contained within the cause. It's not even like a, a, a source, like the sun is a source of light. So the, if the, the sun could only give what it has, you can't give what you don't have. If the sun is able to emanate, to emit light, surely the sun has light. The sun has the potential to give light. The sun has light. So the light exists within the sun. Or like a person who speaks. So if you speak, if you have words, obviously these words, you contain words. The words exist within you. Even before you felt the, the, the words. Even before you knew those words existed. But the words are there. Because... You are the source, and therefore, the source contains the potential, it contains the potential for words. But creation, when you say creation, the word creation means something from nothing, meaning that it did not exist. It simply did not exist. It's absolute nothing. It doesn't exist in the source. The source is, the source is not even a source for it. It doesn't exist. And it's something that's mysterious. It's, it's a mystery. It's a divine miracle. How do you create something from nothing? There's no connection. How did you end up with this physical object, with this physical ox, with this physical cup of water? There's no connection between the created and its source. So how do you end up suddenly with a physical world, with a material world, or for that matter, all of the realms, higher levels of consciousness, angels, the whole universe, does not exist in its source? Within God, it simply doesn't exist. And only God has the power to create something from nothing. And therefore, therefore the divine energy, God's divine ability to create something from nothing, that divine energy and that divine ability must continuously create the world each and every moment. God is, God is personally engaged in creating the world each and every moment. It's deliberate and it's conscious because of God. It wills it. And that is the foundation of divine providence. Everything that happens in this world, to the tiniest detail, is directly. Because God is creating that reality this very moment. And He wills it, and He wants it, and it's necessary, and it's meaningful. Whether it's a grain of sand, an amoeba, the tiniest, to, to, the, to the greatest, it's all the same miracle. It all takes the same effort, so to speak. It's all... And if the divine energy would cease for one moment, would cease to create, to force, to bring everything into existence, everything would revert back to absolute nothingness. It's not like the light of the sun. The light of the sun is the light. When the sun goes down, you don't see the light. 
but the light, the sun still carries the potential for light within itself. If the divine energy would cease to create, it would cease to absolutely cease to exist because it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in its source. It's nothing. It's absolute nothing. And therefore, since the divine energy has to constantly create us, and we are the result of the constant process of creation, the dynamic, vibrant, continuous, constant process of recreation. We are recreated each and every moment. We, in our circumstances, and all the details, everything is being recreated each and every moment. If we were to see this process, to experience this process, we would cease to exist. As we know existence, you wouldn't notice existence. Not that, not that it's an illusion. God is creating. But all you would notice is the creative process. God's creative ability to create this miracle, this stunning, astonishing miracle, God's ability to create something from absolutely nothing. Something that doesn't exist in the source, comes out of nowhere, a quantum leap. Like, it's not like you're progressing from step to step and then you lead to the next logical step. You're progressing and suddenly out of nowhere you end up with this physical world. Where did this come from? Where did this cup of water come from? Where did this table come from? Where did this time and space concepts, where did all this come from? It doesn't exist in its source. So you would, you would, all you would notice is this divine, creative process. So you wouldn't even notice our existence. Just like the light within the sun. Within the sun, you don't even know the light exists because what is light? Light within the sun is nothing other than the, the sun's ability to, to, to give off light. So all you sense is the sun. Just like words and letters within your soul before you actually are conscious of the words. The words are there, but they don't exist. You can't even find them because what is it? It's only the soul's potential to speak and to, and to put ideas or feelings into words. So all that you sense is the source. Or like the physical analogy when you cook the water and suddenly you find grains and sand at the bottom of it. You filter the water, and yet you, you didn't see any sand, you didn't see any grain. It was there, but you don't, it's not there. It's there, but it's not there. So the world, since the world, is entirely dependent. And we're nothing other than the constant, continuous, divine, creative energy bringing us and forcing us into existence. So the real story is the source, the divine energy, the divine process of creation. You wouldn't even notice anything else. You wouldn't pay attention. It wouldn't mean anything. So we should all be nullified within our source. We should all be nullified within the divine energy. And all we should notice is that we're nothing other than the expression of God's creative ability. It's not about us, I. There's no I. All we are is the expression of God's divine creative ability and God's divine creative energy. So all you would sense is the process. That's all you would see. You wouldn't see anything else. You wouldn't see a table, you wouldn't see a chair, you wouldn't see you, you wouldn't see it. All you would see is divine, creative, the infinite. So how is it possible that we do sense ourselves? That we don't sense the truth that we are within the source and we're nothing other than the source. We're nothing other than the divine, creative energy. We're nothing other than an expression of the divine, creative ability to create. And the answer was because God created the world not only 
with the name Hashem, which comes from the word to create, which is God's kindness, God's infinite ability to create, but we also come from the shield. We're a result of the interaction of God's kindness together with the name Elohim, which is the shield, which is the cover-up, that conceals, which is the prism, that defines the light and limits the light. And therefore, since we don't sense the source, Therefore, we are like outside of the source. Therefore, we sense ourselves as being, we sense our existence. And then you have two levels. You have the upper worlds, which at least sense, they're at least like the light that's outside the sun. They sense that they're dependent on God and they're, and they're nothing without God. They can't exist a second without God. They experience that. Just like when the sun goes down, there's no more light, it disappears. You can't be disconnected for a second from the source. And then you have the physical, the material world where you don't even sense that there is a source. You don't, you don't, you don't even sense that you're a dependent existence. You sense that you're an independent existence. There is no source and there is no creator, period. There is no cause. And that's the name Teva where it's totally submerged. Where the divine source is totally hidden and concealed. That's the power of the name Elohim. The name of Lukim, which is the numerical value of Hateva, of nature, the power of nature is because of the habit, because we get used to the fact that the sun rises and everything runs like clockwork and all the rules and the laws of the universe run like clockwork, although the truth is everything is being created each and every moment. All the rules and all the laws of science and nature is being created each and every moment. So it has no independent existence other than the divine creative energy. But since... God is creating, recreating the world each and every moment, and it's like it's so habitual every day. The sun rises, you can depend on it, you can count on it, so you take it for granted. You don't even question it. And then, till the reality becomes totally submerged, it's a complete cover up. You don't even suspect that it may be that nature doesn't explain anything, doesn't answer anything. Maybe there is a cause, maybe there is a reason, maybe there's a creator. So, the question he's asking now. Why did God create the world this way? Why did God create the world in a way that everything is hidden, everything is concealed? Why didn't God create the world that we should see the truth? That we should sense that we are like the light of the sun that's within the sun. We are within the source. We are nothing other than our source. The divine creative energy. We're nothing other than an expression of God's infinite ability to create something from nothing. And we should not sense ourselves. We're not an illusion, but we wouldn't sense our reality. We would sense only one thing, the reality of God. So why didn't God create the world? What do we gain by creating a world where godliness is concealed? Where we do sense our reality, our existence. What's to be gained from it? What's the purpose? It's not just a maya, it's not just an illusion, as the Eastern mystics are fond to say. God created the world this way deliberately, intentionally. It's not just some human lack. God created it this way, because God hid and God concealed. Through His name Elohim, through God's tzimtzum, through God's gevura, strength. So there has to be a purpose. What is the purpose? Why did God create the world this way? That's the question that you just read. What's the cause and the reason for the tzimtzum? What do we gain by making the world appear as an independently existing entity? Would it be so terrible if, 
if we felt the truth, we sense godliness, if we sense the source, wouldn't the world be a much better place? Why did God create the world through the symptom? And now comes the answer. The reason for this is as follows. It is known to all that the purpose of the creation of the world is the revelation of God's sovereignty. But there was no king without a nation. So he's saying that the reason why God created the world is because God desired to be king. As perfect as God is, as omnipotent as God is, as omniscient as God is, as absolute as God is, as perfect as God is, there's one thing that God cannot do alone. What's the one thing that God can do alone? All the philosophers ask the question, why did God create the world? What was he lacking? What, what, what the, what, why was he lacking? God is not lacking anything. So what, what, what was the purpose? Why did God create the world? To express himself. To whom? There's no one to express himself to. It's not that there's any need, there's any lack, there's any want. So why did God create the world? God is perfect. What's he lacking? What does he need the world And the answer is, the ultimate answer is, because God desired, for whatever reason, we don't know why, but God desired. We don't know why, but we know what he desired. He desired to enter into a relationship with us. In the language of the Torah, God wanted to be king. As we say in Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar. On Rosh Hashanah, God says, please coronate me as king of the universe. The reason we blow the shofar in Rosh Hashanah, we take the ram's horn and we blow the shofar, is because something very meaningful and significant takes place when we blow the shofar. God is pleading with us and begging with us, please, coronate me as king of the universe, as your king. A king, subject, relationship, is a relationship. It's not a job. It's not, that the, it's not like a being a president. It's, a, it's like a marriage. It's a relationship between the king and the subject. And that's one thing that you can't do on your own. But isn't that a human concept? That's what no, I on the contrary. Why is there a king in this world? Because there's a king in the, because there's a king above. The reason why God created the world is because God wanted a relationship. God was single, and He wanted to get married. That's one thing you can't do on your own. You can't marry yourself, even if you're God. <laughs> I know many singles think they are, but even if you really are, <laughs> you can't marry yourself. As perfect as you are, you can't marry yourself. You can, you can dig into yourself. At the end of the world, you'll never find marriage. Marriage begins the moment you forget about yourself. And that is the whole foundation of creation. Creation, according to the Ariza, the revolution of the Luriana Kabbalah, before the Luriana Kabbalah, we understood creation as being an expression, a self-expression. God is expressing His self-creativity. God is expressing His brilliance. We are the canvas. God is the artist. 
and God is painting this beautiful canvas and with color and, and filling the world with his wisdom and the brilliance. And God is expressing himself. He's expressing his music and expressing his beauty and his mathematics and expressing his brilliant mind. And this world is self-expression. Voracious bar. Creation is a, cre- is a creative act. God is expressing his creativity. Until the Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, the Einstein of Kabbalah came along and turned everything on its head. He said, on the contrary, creation is not self-expression. Creation came about as a result of God hiding himself. Tzimtzum. God had to absent himself. Creation is not self-expression. Creation is, self, is absence of self. Because God filled all of reality. And there's no room for anyone else, for anything else. But God desired to be king. God wanted to get married. He wanted to enter into a relationship. He wanted to speak to someone. So therefore, in order to enter a relationship, there has to be someone besides you, outside of you. God had to forget about himself, so to speak. And enable, give room, make space for someone outside of God. And that someone has to willingly choose to enter into a relationship with God. Otherwise, God is not a king. He's a dictator. A dictator imposes. A king, the subjects, willingly give their life for the king. Willingly coronate the king as their king. And they subject their lives to him. And they bow down before him. And if, if they, once they accept him as their king, if they're not loyal, they can lose their life. Their life depends on him. It's a total relationship. But it's done willingly. As in marriage. Marriage is a relationship of two adults who willingly choose to enter into a relationship with each other. A total relationship. Total unity. So creation is an act of self-forgetfulness. God had to hide. God had to conceal. God had to forget himself, so to speak allow space for something outside of him, for something separate. And this totally revolutionizes our understanding of our relationship to God. If we are merely God's canvas for God to express his brilliance and his creativity, and then we are nothing other than we are nothing more than just a prop for God to express His kindness. In order for God to express His kindness, we are His prop through which, the tool through which He expresses Himself. But the secret of marriages, of a successful marriage is when you look at your spouse, not as a prop, as part of your self-expression, but marriage begins when you forget about yourself and you focus on the other person. And the other person makes you whole and makes you complete. So God really needs us. Because since God wanted to be a king, desired to be a king, he wanted to marry us, he really needs us. We are the only ones who can make God king. It's only when we willingly subject ourselves to God, we willingly accept upon ourselves God's sovereignty, that He's my king and He can command me and He can order me and I will follow Him and obey His commandments and obey His mitzvahs and and enter into that relationship, we make him king. When we agree to get married to God, then, then he is married, otherwise he is not. So God really needs us. In order to fulfill his desire to be king, 
He really needs us and he can't force it upon us. If he forces it upon us, if he imposes it upon us, then he ceases to be king. Then he's a dictator. So he really needs us. We're not just a prop. It's a two-way street. It's a relationship. It's real. And therefore, creation is something that really means something to God. From that point of view, you can't say that creation is nothing. Creation really means something to God. Because from God's desire to be king, from that attribute of royalty, of divine royalty, from that attribute of divine royalty, that is the source of creation. That is the source of creating something that's apart from God, that's separate from God. To put it in other words, God has that unique power to be able to totally step outside of himself, to see himself the way an outsider would see him. Since we are created in the image of God, that is why the deepest part within us, relationships, touch the deepest part within us. Because what is relationship? Relationship is self-forgetfulness. Relationship is focusing on another person. Seeing yourself through someone else's eyes. That's the most profound thing. That touches us in the deepest place. Self-expression is limited. But what expresses the deepest part within you? The deepest part within you is your ability to totally step outside of yourself. And the truth is, everything in this world is made up of relationships. What's the marketplace? What's business? Business is all about relationships. The customer is always right. It's seeing yourself through the customer's eyes. You, are not, you don't find success. You don't discover success inside of yourself. Who makes you successful? It's the customer who makes you successful. The outsider who likes what he sees, who likes what he hears, who buys into it. Who makes the writer successful? The reader, the buyer. Who makes the musician successful? The audience. So it's, it touches the deepest place within you. When you're able to see yourself, able to reflect yourself, see yourself reflected in someone else's eyes from a complete outsider. That touches the deepest place within you. Because that is the whole purpose of creation. Relationship is, the, is what life is all about. Right in the beginning it says, God created heaven and earth and other Machava got married. Because that, that, that's, really what, that's really what creation is all about. That's the purpose that drove God to create the world. Really, the only two people there. Yes. But the motivation, but God could have created them to be single. The very first thing the Torah tells us is that that is the whole purpose of creation. It's not that they were two independent singles, and they, they were friends. <laughs> but the whole purpose of creation, this is the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation is God wanted a marriage. God wanted a relationship. He wanted to be king. He wants someone outside of him. He wants to see himself from an outsider's eyes. How do we see God? And in order to accomplish this, you had to create a separate being. So this is the whole source of creation. The whole source of creation is the attribute of royalty, the divine attribute of royalty. God's the right, obviously God is the writer, correct? In this, in this, in this right. scenario? Right. 
mean, what about if there are people who don't want to read, who don't think what God's writing is very good? Does that mean what God's writing is Very good. That's a very good point. That was the whole point, that God pleads with us. The Torah says, Im Im Ein Im Im literally means, if you will follow my footsteps. The Medrash says that Im really means God is begging us. He's pleading with us. Please. I need you to do, to do Torah mitzvot. God needs us to do Torah mitzvot. If you ask most rabbis, the classical understanding of Torah mitzvot is, God doesn't need it. It's for our sake. God is perfect. He doesn't need it. God doesn't need our prayers. God doesn't need our praise. God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our mitzvot. It's tools. And out of God's kindness, God gave us tools to help us. But God doesn't need it. That's a superficial understanding of the whole creation. The Torah is telling us that God wanted to be king. God cannot be king by himself. He needs us. We make him king. If we read his book, then he's successful. Otherwise he's not. See, God pleads with us and God's pleading empowers us. God gives us power to be able to do it. But there are many people who don't like his book and they question his book and they rewrite his book and, and they misinterpret and, his book. And that's why God is in exile. Until Mashiach comes. When Mashiach will come, when 14 million Jews will all cherish their Jewishness, and 6 billion people, with the exception of the Amalekites, the cancer of the world, the terrorists of the world, but the 70 nations of the world who will be refined and elevated, who are not, with the exception of those who are pure and absolute evil and, and just toxic waste, but the, the 6 billion people of the world who are created in the image of God will acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Until that moment, God is in exile. We, it's not just we're in exile. The temple is destroyed because God is in exile. God's name is not allowed to be mentioned today because God's name is hidden and concealed. So God's throne is incomplete. God's name is incomplete. God is suffering in exile. And that adds urgency for the, the urgency of bringing Mashiach. Because every moment that Mashiach doesn't come, it's not just we're suffering. Mashiach is suffering. The Jewish people are suffering. God himself is suffering. But inevitably, inevitably, it's not an option. We know that inevitably the entire world will accept the sovereignty of God. Because since God's essence, God is the essence of all reality, and God is the truth of all reality, the definition of emes, which finds no translation in any other language, the definition of emes is aleph, mem, tav, the first, the middle, and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mean, meaning that it's 100%, it's absolute. So if God's reality is absolute, then God will be acknowledged and recognized by independent human beings who will willingly and consciously on their own come to the realization that there is a God in this world. We are so confident, Judaism is so confident of this, that God's kingdom will be established, that God's sovereignty will be established, that all human beings will come to the awareness, especially in the information age, all human beings will come to the awareness and perceive the reality of God. It's inevitable. Why? Because God is truth. And therefore, truth is absolute. So if you're going to limit God to the heaven of heavens, and you're going to limit God to Jerusalem, or to Crown Heights, or to Borough Park, or to Muncie, or in the minds of certain individuals, holy, pious saints, but... The rest of the world, in their consciousness, in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives, God is no reality, then that's a direct 
contradiction to God's absolute truth. That's why the, the, the attribute of royalty is the ultimate purpose of creation, is the ultimate expression of God's absolute truth. If God is one, exclusive, and nothing else exists but God, and there's no existence but God, and there's no room for any existence outside of God, then I haven't demonstrated God's absolute unity. It's almost God imposing himself on us. How can you demonstrate God's absolute unity when God, through the attribute of royalty, does create a separation? And he's going to explain in a moment to what extent that separation is. He, exp- he creates a separation of creatures, creatures who, who, creation that's separate from God. And God does not impose himself on us. Godliness is hidden. Godliness is concealed. And we live in a very limited framework of time and space and sense of self and ego. And yet, within this framework, on our own, we come to the realization, it dawns on us, and we come to the realization, to the truth, that there is a God in this world. And we willingly choose upon our, choose and accept upon ourselves God's sovereignty and enter into this relationship. That demonstrates most eloquently the ultimate absolute truth of God. That God is so genuine and so absolute, 100%, that even in a world which seemingly appears to be disconnected from God, a world in which apparently you have a male and a female, two separate and even opposite beings, and yet the truth is you discover a deeper unity. You discover that ultimately they merge and they unite and they become one. That's the absolute, ultimate expression of God's absolute truth, of God's absolute unity. So that is the source of creation. That is the purpose of creation. That's what motivates creation. It's the ultimate demonstration of God's unity. That there appears to be a space where God is hidden. Even a world that appears to be opposed to God. And yet, eventually and ultimately, on its own, the world comes to the realization. And what that means in practical terms, today, if you open your eyes, today, in the laboratory, the scientists, using scientific tools, not studying holy books, using scientific tools is coming to the realizations and the truths of the Torah. The absolute unity of all things. Matter is energy. Quantum mechanics. The deepest levels, as the scientist goes deeper into the deepest levels of reality. I mean, the New York Times wrote a few years ago on the front cover that modern physics is beginning to sound more and more like the Kabbalah. They're talking about ten-string ten string theory, reality, different layers, parallel universes and realities. I mean, this is pure, pure Kabbalah. But, but the scientist is coming to it on his own. That's the ultimate unity. That's the ultimate expression of the sovereignty of God, of God's kingdom. That God wanted that there should be a world that's separate from him. And yet on their own, they will come to the realization. And that expresses the absolute deepest unity. That there are scientists coming to those realizations, but simultaneously there are scientists last week in Malaysia who found that there were something that were akin to hobbits who existed in Malaysia, you know, around, I don't know, 60,000 years ago, quote-unquote, and they don't exist anymore. I mean, there are some that do, but there are several others that come and, you know, 
as much as Darwin was probably wrong, the, the, the underpinnings of Darwinism are the foundations for all future scientific discovery, which in some respects may eventually lead to the true Darwinism altogether. So you're saying, in other words, Mashiach hasn't come yet. <laughs> Mashiach hasn't come yet. You have to look at a trend. See, trends are very hard to discern. A trend, when the ocean starts turning around, you know, it's very subtle, but that's the trend. And inevitably, it'll, it'll all will follow. For example, look at the Jewish people. 200 years ago, 99% of Jews were observant. Within 100 years, 80% couldn't run away fast enough. Because there was a trend. The Enlightenment, they discovered the world, the universities opened up for the Jew. But today, the trend and the energy is in the opposite direction. People are rediscovering with a passion, with a vengeance. People have been cut off for three generations. And that's the trend on all levels of life, all walks of life. So yes, maybe the news hasn't reached yet uh, 50%, 60%. You still have 50% into marriage. But today, it's just, it's just a matter of time. The tr- this is a definite trend. This is where the excitement is. This is where the energy is. And this is where the movement is. Yes, the many scientists were still stuck in a 19th century, classical, Newtonian, materialistic, reductive scientific way of thinking, which is so outdated. It's, out, it's outdated as the dinosaur. But, you know, they take those absolutes for granted. But if you're really in tune with the cutting edge of modern physics, and the cutting edge of science, I mean, it's... All those assumptions are just absurd. But that's the trend. So it's just a matter of time for the world to catch up. And today we're living in the Pentium Age, so we don't have to, we, thank God we won't have to wait years and decades and centuries for the world to catch up, it can happen in a moment. Everyone is wired, everyone is connected, and it can happen in a split second. And life is so full of surprises. So, okay, let's continue the point that he's making here. But there is no king without a nation. The word om is related etymologically to the word dimmed, extinguished, as in the expression describing coals in which the fire is not to be seen. In terms of the relationship of a king and his subjects, the word um, therefore, signifies those whose relationship with the king is not readily apparent, for they, the subjects who comprise a nation, are separate entities, distinct and distant from the level of the king. Only upon them does the king reign, as a result of their nullifying themselves to him. For even if he had very many children, the term kingship would not apply to them, inasmuch as the king's children are part of the king himself. Nor is it possible for a king to reign even over nobles alone. Although they, unlike a king's children, are not part of him, nevertheless, since their position puts them in constant and close contact with him, thereby lending them some of the aspects of kingship, the king cannot reign over nobles alone. Only in a numerous nation is the glory of the king. Only upon strangers can sovereignty apply. The same is true above. The ultimate intent of the revelation of divine kingship finds expression in his reigning over lowly created beings who perceive themselves as existing independently of him so that they too should humble and nullify themselves before him. If a person is a Robinson Crusoe, is alone on an island, of course you can't be king over yourself. Just like you can't say that uh, a person is king over your body. Are you king over your body? Your body is yourself. You can't be king over yourself. 
He can't be king over your children. Because children are also part of you. They're an expression of you. They're your, they, you are, they're your essence. Your genes, your essence. You can't even be king over ministers. Because ministers are, you can't really call them strangers because they're, they have some understanding, some relationship to the king, some inner connection. A king could only be over strangers. Which means in the universe, the angels are compared to the ministers in the heavenly palace. But God desired to be king. And the only ones he could be king is over strangers. We are the strangers. Because we are independent. We think we feel independent. We don't feel that our existence is truly nullified. We feel independent. And therefore, when we enter into a relationship with God, when we nullify ourselves before God, we choose, willingly choose to submit ourselves to God, we evoke God's sense of royalty, just like a king. It's when the subjects bow down in front of the king and willingly accept upon themselves their sovereignty, they evoke kingship within the king. Kingship is one attribute that you can't evoke within yourself. You can't evoke it within yourself. A person could evoke kindness, even if there's no one around. Because kindness, love, kindness, is an attribute that describes you. It's part of you. You love you want to do kindness. You have no one to bestow your kindness to, but your heart is all excited. You want to bestow kindness. But the attribute of royalty, it's like the attribute of speech. If you're alone on an island, there's no one to talk to, it means nothing. What, what's speaking? What's speaking? There's no one, if there's no one to have a relationship to, then it just remains dormant or completely, it's as if it's, it doesn't exist. Who can evoke that attribute within you, that attribute, that ability and that need to communicate, relationship, create a relationship, to speak, to communicate, to be a king, it's only the outsider. The outsider could evoke that attribute within you. So when we, human beings, who have freedom of choice, who sense our independence, we don't sense God, we sense ourselves. And we willingly choose to have a relationship with God, to pray to God, to speak to God, to repeat His words, His Torah, to learn and study His words. Torah is God's words, the divine words, His wisdom. And to follow His commandments and to enter into a relationship with Him. By us bowing down and subjugating ourselves in front of the king, which is how the subjects approach the king. They bow down. You approach the king, you bow down. You evoke that quality of royalty within the king, that the king desires to be a king, to have a connection with you. Because the king per se, who is chosen to be king? Usually, not a dictator, a king, where the subjects choose and coronate and willingly subject themselves to this individual to represent them, to be their heart, to be their mind, to be their king. It's an individual who's head and shoulders above average. He doesn't need, he doesn't need this. He doesn't want it and he doesn't need it. It doesn't add anything to him. He may prefer being left alone. But when the people coronate him and subject themselves to him and bow down to him and accept him as their sovereign, that evokes within him the desire to have a relationship, to be their king, to be their leader and to totally connect with, with his people. Continue. The name that indicates the attribute of Hashem's mouth for kingship 
is the name of Adnud, lordship, for his kingship lies in the fact that he is lord of the whole universe. Thus, it is this attribute, Malchut, and this name, the name of Adnud, signifying lordship, which bring the world into existence and sustain it so that it should be as it is now, a completely independent and separate entity and not absolutely nullified. For with the withdrawal of this attribute and this name from the world, Hashem forbid, the world would revert to its source in the word of Hashem and the breath of his mouth, where it would be completely nullified and the name world could not be applied to it at all. Inherent in the name world is being and limitation. Okay, so the name, the divine attribute, God's name, through which he creates the world, with which he creates the world, is the name of Adonai, which comes from the word Adnut, that God is the master of the world, God is the king of the world, the lord of the world. Because it's that attribute that creates the world as it is, which is a world that senses its separation, a world that senses its independence, a world that does not sense that it's completely nullified before God, a world that does not sense that all that, exi- all that is is really the source, all that is is really God. We are nothing other than an expression of the divine ability to create something from nothing, but a world that has a healthy sense of its independence, a healthy sense of its existence. And the only reason why God created the world this way, through the tzimtzum, why God absented himself, why God concealed himself, why God contracted himself, is only because God desired to be a lord, a king. He wanted to enter into a relationship with us. And it's that quality that creates the world as is, that allows us to be separate and enables us to enter into a relationship with God. Enables us enables God to see himself from our perspective and ultimately expressing God's absolute, ultimate unity, the deepest level of unity. That even a world that on the surface appears to be separate and independent, that world, using its own devices, using its own freedom of choice, on its own, comes to the realization and the perception and it dawns on them and they realize in their hearts, and their minds, and their consciousness, the truth that there is a God and that God is the absolute, ultimate reality and the ultimate truth that we don't, we are really, our existence is really nothing other than God. So this is the whole motivation. This is the motivation for creation. Because other than that, if we did not have the tzimtzum, Without the tzimtzum, without the name Adonai, without the name, without the divine attribute, the royal, of divine royalty, we would cease to exist. Not that we would be an illusion, but we wouldn't even notice our existence. We wouldn't even sense our existence. We would sense that we are nothing other than the expression of the divine ability to create. We are a continuous process that's continuously creating us each and every moment all you would notice and sense is the process there's a a very fine line here you want the connection you pray you want to get connected you want to you want to pray with all your heart and soul and you want to you want to make that connection so that the world is obliterated was it in Rashi in uh, Pardis is it Pardis 
when one of the rabbis prays so much that he's a blitterman. He goes crazy. So we want to attain this level, but we still have to come back to reality and to our reality and material world. So you can't, you can't. Although you're, you're striving for that connection which is really a go- one of our goals in prayer and, and, and in life to make that connection. But if you make that connection to the nth degree... You're gone. <laughs> not only you're gone, but then, you have, then it's, it's defeating the, the so-called purpose. No? We don't have to be concerned about that, though. That nth degree is beyond... We that. don't, but someone has to be. Someone <laughs> might be concerned. Well, actually, we're going to learn... In next week's class, we're going to address that issue. Um, he's going to talk about the two levels of unity, the higher level of unity and the lower level of unity. And he's going to explain how even, even with existence, the truth is that we remain totally unified with God. But hold that question next week. Plato and others, they accepted there was a God, but their view of the world was that it was a football that had been kicked. And that there was a God, but it didn't really matter what you did as long as you had fun. Right. To, you know, that's obviously a huge generalization, right. but in essence, there's some truth to it. Well, we discussed that earlier, that their, their understanding of God was that God is, that this world has an author, that there's a creator, and that's logical. They were very, they were a smart group of people. And therefore, they understood that every book has an author, every artist has a painter. So obviously there is a God. God is the ultimate cause and the original cause. And they understood that. The original philosophers understood that. You know, and that's a very logical thing to understand. But, like you say, it had no impact on their behavior because that's not the Jewish understanding of God. The Jewish understanding of God is not just that God is the cause and the world is the effect, but creation is a whole different story. Creation means that the world is... is the world is entirely dependent on God. That the world has no independent existence of God. Creation is, is a miracle. Creation is constantly, God is constantly involved and engaged in creation. They denied miracles. They denied anything divine. Creation is understanding that the world is totally dependent on God. And in, within creation, there are many levels of understanding creation. We have the classical understanding of creation. It's like we learned last week that God is the soul to the world, just like the soul is to the body, what the soul is to the body, the microcosm, so too in the macrocosm, God is the soul of the world. Now, the body is not the effect of the soul. The body and the soul are, are inseparable. The body is an expression of the soul. The body is, 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 is more than a tool in the hands of the builder. The body is just completely unified with the soul. The body is completely unselfconscious. That's how intimate, that's how unified the body is. Whatever the soul wants, the body automatically does. So that understanding of creation is that God is intimately involved in creation. God creates the world. Everything that happens in the world is just an expression of God's will. Nothing in the world happens independently. Everything is an expression of God's will and God's divine providence. But here, the Baal Shem Tov introduced, and the Rebbe explains a much deeper concept of unity. That the, the world is not even a secondary reality in comparison to God. 
It's not even like the body to the soul. It's much deeper than that. To, the, to, the, to God, the world has no existence, has no value, inherent value. It means nothing. Not even, not even as an expression of the divine ability to create. Because, you know, the divine ability to create doesn't engage God or occupy God. It's not like, this is what God does, He creates. To God, God has the ability to create, and He has, He does. But to God, the ability to create, He can't even find that inside of Himself. It means nothing to Him. That ability, that infinite divine ability that, that's so mind-boggling and so it just blows our mind away and incomprehensible to us. How can you create something that doesn't exist in its source? Out of nothing, out of nowhere. It's absolutely nothing. Which to us is so unbelievable. To God, that ability is nothing. Because all of creation, God creates the world with His words. With the divine attribute of royalty, as He said here. God's ability to communicate. With God's words. Well, the words within God, God doesn't even sense His words. The words are there, but they're not there. It's as if it doesn't exist. Because it doesn't contain God. It's not like this is what God does. You know what a God does? God creates. He's busy creating. He engages it. To God, creation is nothing. The ability to create is nothing. It, that's why we call it something from nothing. Why do we call creation something from nothing? It should have been just the opposite. We are nothing. Because we don't even exist in our source. We are absolutely nothing. And the source, the divine energy, the divine attribute of royalty that we just learned, that's something. That's what's creating us, continuously creating us, animating us, creating us, sustaining us. We, that's, we should have been called nothing from something. Why are we called something from nothing? From God's perspective, the answer is because the source of creation which is the divine attribute of royalty, the divine ability to create something separate from him, something from nothing. That attribute to God is nothing. Within God, it's like a person, ten words, you speak ten words. Where are those ten words inside of you? You can't even find it. It's there, it comes from you. It doesn't come from thin air. You're the source of the words. Obviously, you came up with words that was inside of you. But you know what? When they were inside of you, I had no idea where they are. I didn't even know it existed. Because it means nothing. It doesn't contain you. Ten words don't contain you. It doesn't even scratch the surface. It's nothing in comparison to your whole self. In comparison to your thought, in comparison to your emotions, in comparison to your intellect, in comparison to your subconscious, in comparison to your essence. Ten words don't even, doesn't exhaust you. It doesn't, doesn't even begin to, not only doesn't exhaust you, it doesn't even begin to, to scratch your surface. So, you, so the world to God, you can't even say, well, at least the world, yes, the world is no independent reality, the world is totally dependent on God, its entire being and essence is none other than the divine energy that's constantly and continuously creating us, but at least, at least, we're an expression of God's divine ability to create something from nothing. It has some value. So we say, no, ain't oid. It's not even a secondary reality. The body has a value to the soul. It's a relationship. It's a parallel universe. Yes, the body is completely nullified for the soul. The body is completely unselfconscious. It's just an expression of the soul. But the body has a value an expression of the soul. But you cannot say that the world is an expression of God. Or that the ability to create, the divine ability to create, this, the, the, our world, which is an expression of the divine ability to create, is an expression of God. Because within God, the divine ability to create is nothing. So even our source is nothing. 
In comparison to God, it's nothing. See, even after God created the world, it means nothing. It, it, what happened here? Nothing happened. It doesn't begin to grasp or engage God. It, that's the deepest level of unity. That we are so nullified before God. That nothing exists but God. God was alone before He created the world. God was alone after He created the world. And that t- radically revolutionizes your behavior. If you know that there's nothing but God and nothing changes and God is right here with me, right now, right in front of me, then my life, everything in my life is, there's only one theme in my life. There's one, everything in my life is divine. You live a divine life, a good life, a godly life, a Jewish life, a holy life. That is the underpinning of a Jew's life. Because we, this, the essence of God, has a relationship with us. And it matters to God how we behave, how we act. This God who's totally transcendent, who even the source of creation, the divine energy to create, is nothing in comparison to the essence of God. This essence has entered into a relationship with us has married us, is pleading with us. Yankala, Sarala, please, I need you. Do me a favor. Put on film. Light a candle. Give a penny to tzedakah. Tell the truth. Be kind. Be honest. That's a, that's a, holy, that's a Jewish life. What about everybody else? I always ask that. I know many non-Jews who are, you know, at least on the surface, are far more compassionate and caring and, and charitable than many Jewish people I know. Now, I don't want to, it's not a question of judgment, but it is to an extent. I, it, it seems so hard to, to, believe, to, to, to fathom how it's these 14 million people, many of whom I interact with, who are wonderful people, I suppose, but don't seem to be off all that godly on a day-to-day basis. And then these people who don't have, quote-unquote, a godly soul, you really get the impression that they are. And, you know, the irony is that the Jew doesn't see it, but everyone else does. The reason why the, the focus and the attention never leaves the Jew, as you said, there's hardly any Jews in this world. And yet, we occupy the front pages, day in, day out, constantly, is because they see. We don't see it. But they see it. They, they see in every Jew, consciously or subconsciously, they see the Jew. There's a divine spark there. The Jew stood at Sinai. There's something there. You're not like us. No, there's no question. They, there's, you, like they, they know that a Jew is holy. We don't know it. But they know that even a Jew doesn't know that he's holy, he's holy. On the conscious, the Jew may not know it. But deep down, it's there. It's the core, it's the essence. It's written all over him. He can't help it. As much as he tries, it just, it just, he can't run away because it's your essence. They see it. You know why they see it? Because they're objective. They see the truth. So a Jew doesn't appreciate it. And the reason is because it's all ignorance. Most Jews don't know. Most Jews were never exposed, never studied Tanya. Most Jews never have no understanding of what makes us Jewish. You know, you know that being Jewish means 
you know, you visit Yad Vashem, the, the new Yad Vashem, and you visit the Holocaust Museum downtown, and you visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, they're all beautifully done. I mean, very, very, very powerful and very well done. So you know that being Jewish means to be singled out, to be attacked, to be maligned, to be blood libeled against, to be divested from who needs it and who wants it. If you don't have the tools, you have no, you have no understanding and you have no appreciation to cherish what it means to be a Jew, what makes us Jewish. We have an neshama, we have a divine essence, we have a piece of God within us, we have a divine spark. But once you start learning, the good news is you can do something about ignorance. You can teach. And once you start learning and you start appreciating, you start cherishing, you start connecting, you start revealing that connection. That connection is there. You start revealing and that connection emerges and surfaces. Then you become a living, breathing, vibrant, vital Jew. You carry yourself with dignity. And then you start fulfilling your mission of being the ambassador for God, of being a light unto the nation, of being a positive influence that elevates and transforms your whole environment. Those Jews you mentioned earlier, the, so many Jews involved in this case that are unfortunately on the wrong side of the issue, again, it all boils down to ignorance, education, education, education. Most Jews today, due to no fault of their own, had the zero exposure to anything Jewish, anything meaningful. Um, if, anything, if anything, it was only negative. The bar mitzvah was more bar than mitzvah, so you can't really blame anyone. I see non-Jews on a daily basis who are doing spectacular humanitarian positive things that are more in the spirit of Chabad than most Jews I know. More they're willing to do anything to help a neighbor, somebody suffering. I mean, there's no spark of godliness there? There has to be. The reason Jews don't proselytize is because we believe that every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being is called Noahide. And uh, Noah was a giant of a person. Noah uh, single-handedly saved the world, maintained his morality, his, his, his uh, standards, his integrity, although the world was hopelessly corrupt. And we believe every human being has the potential to be a miniature Noah, six billion people. So everybody has a godly spark of some sort. Everyone Jews, is created Jews, in the Jews. image of God. But the... Every Jew, what makes a Jewish soul, makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish soul. The Jewish soul is that we have a piece of the divine essence. Not to create in the image of God, a piece of the divine essence. Which is why a Jew senses and knows, inherits that faith, and knows the unity of God, the absolute unity of God, and lives that unity, expresses that unity through the Torah and the mitzvah. And it's innate, it's inherent, it's there. We are the last ones to see it. Everyone else sees it in us. Even the most assimilated Jew, the most cultured Jew, the most assimilated Jew, they see it. Israel today is the Jew of the world, as much as they try to assimilate. But what do you do when the President of the United States has greater faith in God than the Prime Minister of Israel? So that's, that's where the pressure comes in. The pressure is a hidden message to the Jew. Anti-Semitism is the world's funny way of telling the Jew, start being a Jew. Get your act together. Lead the world. Stop pretending that, you, that your claim to fame is that you're invited to the ranch, to the Texas ranch, that the president likes you and will pat you on your back. The, your claim to fame is that Hashem patted you on the back that Hashem chose you and you stood at Sinai and that He's married to you and you're living together in His home. 
That's your claim to fame. Act, carry yourself with dignity. You're not dependent on the United States. You are independent. You are the leader of the world, not the follower. You're the chosen people. You're the prophet. You are the leader. Act like a leader. And whenever the Jew acts like a leader, whether it was in Tebi or 81 or 67, the world was in awe. It's when the Jew acts like a schlepper that our stock plummeted, our stock plummeted, and rightfully so. Because you speak Hebrew, but the content is not Jewish. We're not hearing Jewish dignity. We're not hearing Jewish truths. We're not hearing Jewish pride. We don't buy it. So it's anti-Semitism is the non-Jew's funny way of telling us, Jew, get your act together. And you know what? It's not going away. (laughs) Until the Jew will get his act together, it's not going to stop. The most Jewish place in the world is arguably Crown Heights, New York. True? To an extent. I mean, it was in Crown Heights in 1991 that Mishagas happened on the streets there, and that was two Jews. You know, the most God-fearing, passionate, excited, mitzvah-doing Jews I've ever met in my life. Truthfully, the mitzvah, they do mitzvahs, they can't wait up and get up in the morning to do mitzvahs. And it was there that one of the greatest tragedies on American soil happened to Jewish people probably in the last 50 years. When there was a riot, they killed someone, a, a yeshiva Bokhar student was killed. They tried to hurt many more. People were hiding in their homes. I have non-Jewish friends who tell me, who told me, I have an Irish Catholic guy who told me that 1991, in his words, was a pogrom. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, about the Holocaust, he says, he once commented, you know, the six million were the best Jews in the world. God took the best, the cream. He said, when you slap a child, where do you slap the child? On the face. On the face. Who gets the slap? The face. Why? It's the hand that's in, usually, the, or the leg. Well, why are you slapping the face? Because the face should have educated the rest of the body. The face was not doing its job. Because Jews are responsible for each other. So who gets slapped? Who's the most visible Jew? The most visible Jews are the ones who get slapped. The ones who are the most Jewish. They're the ones who get slapped. So, you know, God's ways are a mystery. We don't know God's ways. But it was a shock. The biggest shock of the whole Crown Heights incident. And we lived through it. The stores were shut down in the afternoon. We were in the, in the apartments, our little babies, little children, locked behind locked doors. They were rampaging down the street. But the most shocking part of the whole thing of Crown Heights was, where were the Jews? A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. All Jews are connected. We're brothers. We're family. Jews were the first ones to march in Alabama. Yes. Why weren't there 2,000 Jews marching down Eastern Parkway? We were the Park Avenue Jews. Ah, because it was those, because it was those Jews. And therefore, maybe we didn't do our job. Because the job of Chabad, Lubavitches, to communicate that message that, it, that Jews are all connected. There's no such thing as those Jews and us Jews. The whole, the whole driving force behind Chabad, the whole theme of Lubavitch, the whole theme of Judaism, of Hasidism, is love your fellow Jew like yourself, that Jews are all connected, we're all responsible for each other, we're all connected. You can't make artificial divisions. 
Reform, conservative, Orthodox, unaffiliated. These are all artificial labels. What makes us Jewish is we're all born with a Jewish soul, with a divine soul, and we're all connected. And that was the big. That, that hurt the most. What hurt the most was the fact that there was no one around. There was no one to be seen. It took a non-Jew. The motto took a non-Jew. It, 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 takes, it takes a non-Jew. This is my point coming back to the holy stuff, which was my original question. There are so many non-Jews I know who act in the best interest of Jews on a daily basis and want to do for Jews. Aldemato, in 1991, was the only politician in the state of New York who came out and was livid in what he saw there. And the Rebbe, I'm sure, appreciated it. What you're describing is exile. That is the exile that we're trying to combat. Exile is an inner state. Exile is not a physical state. It's not buying a plane ticket and moving to Israel. If it would be that easy to end the exile, paying a 500 halal ticket and move to Israel, it's an inner state. Inner state of exile is when a Jew is alienated from himself. When a Jew is alienated from his own core, his own essence. That's exile. That's the deepest exile. When Jews are ready to exile themselves from their own home, that's the deepest, darkest, exile, most painful exile. And that's what Chabad's mission is. To combat that darkness, combat that exile through education, education, education. There's no shortcuts. You have to reach one Jew at a time. You have to educate him. You have to teach Hasidus. We have to get the Tanya out. You have to just... Because unless you have the information, you simply... You can be a billionaire. But if you don't know it, you don't know how to write a withdrawal slip, you don't know how to access it, you can be walking around in tatters, you can walk around homeless and starving to death. You're a billionaire. Every Jew is a billionaire. You inherit it. Just like Bill Gates' son is automatically inherits $50 billion, $40 billion. Every Jew inherited from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every Jew, you're born to a Jewish mother, you converted halachically, you inherited this divine soul, this divine faith. Every Jew is a billionaire. But, unfortunately, due to no fault of their own, so many Jews are walking around homeless, hungry, spiritually, homeless, hungry, tattered, because they don't know. They never were educated. And that's what the Chabad mission is. To educate, Chabad is education. Chachma bin Daz, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Because, of course, you have that faith. But unless you have that education and the understanding and the depth to really engage it, and, and, um, then you don't have the tools. So it's education, education, education. So obviously, we have so much more to do. That was a wake up call for us. That was such a wake up call. You would think after 40 years of Chabad houses, of you know, you would have Jews. But there were there were some Jews. I know Rabbi Avi Weiss was was throwing caskets at David Dinkins' house, screaming pogrom, pogrom. I mean, there were a couple. You had Ed Koch. Hopefully, hopefully, we should never be tested again. But hopefully, over the last many years, the situation has improved. The message is getting out, and. Jews will react differently. Someone told me today, you go, you see Jews all over the world caring for each other. There's so many organizations where one Jew cares for another Jew. If you open your eyes, you'll see the amount, the level of one Jew caring for another Jew. And that's really what Chabad is. All the Chabad houses, the 3,600 Chabad houses, are really an example. And they're inspiring everyone in their community lead that type of life where one Jew just cares and thinks about another Jew and cares and looks out for another Jew. 
So it is growing. The message is getting out. And that's why we're living in the threshold of Mashiach. The positive, at the same time that we have all these negatives, is also profound positive things that are also developing and growing exponentially. And uh, so that's the good news. And we just have to continue. To continue to educate, to inspire, one Jew at a time, one mitzvah at a time, to reveal, ignite that spark. It's there. Every Jew is full of dynamite. You just have to light the match. You just have to touch the match. This is the match. The Tanya, that's the match. It can ignite, explode into fireworks where the Jew comes alive as a Jew. It's exciting, it's thrilling, it's, 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 it's uplifting, it's inspiring. Where Judaism comes alive. Because unfortunately, too many Jews, those who did grow up religious, but they're in a very dark place. It's very imposed. They're not proud of it. It's something that they feel forced. They have to do it, right? It's imposed upon them. There's no joy. There's no passion. Without the inner, the soul of the Torah, the Hasidus, the gem, the, 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 then, it's, then you're, you're lacking that whole fire. And this is the, the light that ignites the spark, the crown jewel that ignites the spark. And suddenly you come alive as a Jew. And then automatically... A Jew becomes a light unto the nation. The nature of light is light doesn't have to impose itself on anyone. You're naturally attracted to light. It, the darkness just melts away. You can't have darkness where there's light. So the Rebbe's answer to darkness is, the greater the darkness, let's intensify the light. The greater the darkness, more joy. You want to fight darkness? Add joy. Deepen your joy. Deepen your learning. Deepen your understanding. Deepen your davening. Deepen your mitzvahs. Expand. Grow. That's the only answer. How do you fight darkness? Darkness should inspire you to increase and intensify the light. When you see the madness coming out of Israel today, it should only intensify the light. We should, we should double and redouble our efforts. Anything good that we're doing, we should just intensify. That's, that's really the hidden message of darkness, the hidden message of anti-Semitism. The hidden message of darkness is, or the hidden message of that horrible incident. It, the answer is to intensify light. It's a message is... You have to, whatever you're doing, you have to do much more, much deeper, much, and ultimately the light will always win. The joy will always win. The light will always win. Because that's the truth. Hashem is good. At the core, the world is good. And the more you connect with it, and the more you intensify, all that, good will, all that goodness will emerge and will prevail until you'll see it's good. It'll be tangibly good. You'll get nachas. You'll see Jews starting to act like Jews, speaking like Jews, representing the Jewish people. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.